expression that we use that means that I have come to a deeper understanding. I uh, understand something now that I didn't understand before. My um, perception of something has been elevated now. And that expression that we use is what? We just sang it. I saw the light, right? And that means that we now understand. We understand something that we didn't understand before. We have now been given insight into something that we lacked insight about before. And so, I saw the light is what we often say. Well, we can say that about Paul this morning because he's telling us the story of when he saw the light. He's telling us the story of his conversion experience, of course, on the road to Damascus. We began talking about this last week. We'll finish up talking about this this morning. But Paul is now back in Jerusalem. He's been making his way back to Jerusalem because he has this offering to give to the Jewish church in Jerusalem, an offering from the Gentile Christians outside of Israel. He brings this offering, he gives it to the Jerusalem church, but he's also made aware of this problem that exists among the Jewish Christians here in Jerusalem. And the problem is Paul. They are not really happy about what they have been told that Paul is preaching and what he's teaching outside of Israel because, well, in a nutshell, the Jewish Christians are wrapped up in legalism. They are covered up in legalistic thinking and Paul's message of grace doesn't match very well with the message of legalism. And so they're not too happy with Paul. But the Jewish elders there, they come up with a plan, a compromise to hopefully appease those who are unhappy with Paul. And it involves a purification ceremony and it involves making some sacrifices in the temple. And so Paul does this in order to bring about, hopefully bring about unity in the church here. But it doesn't work at all, does it? In fact, it doesn't even work even for just a few days because... The Jews there in Jerusalem see Paul coming out of the temple and they get very upset. As we're told, it was not the Jerusalem Jews, but it was the Asian Jews. The very ones, the very ones who had saw, had seen rather, what had happened in Ephesus. That the incredible revival that had taken place there in Ephesus as if people are forsaking their idols, throwing away idols, idol makers are going out of business, people are burning their books of witchcraft and magic. This incredible revival breaks out, yet these Asian Jews are too focused on one tradition that they think that Paul has broken. They overlook all of these these other things that God is doing through Paul, and they attack Paul because of that. They see Paul coming out of the temple, and they remember that earlier they'd seen him with this fellow Trophimus, who's an Ephesian Gentile. And so they assume that that means that Paul has taken Trophimus into the Jewish part of the temple. So they get rather upset about this. Of course, Paul didn't do that. But they get very upset, and they attack Paul. A riot breaks out. They're beating Paul, trying to kill him. And he saved the Roman army. They come into his uh, rescue, which is not the last time that the Roman army is going to rescue Paul. They come to his rescue, and they save him by putting him in chains, by arresting him. And then they take him. By the way, he's going to be in chains from this point on. He's, he's never going to be free from bondage through the rest of the story of Acts. But they chain him, they arrest him, and then they're trying to figure out what's going on. And Paul asks the tribune, he says, can I speak to the crowd? So he goes out and he begins speaking to the crowd. We looked at the first half of Paul's speech last week. But this speech that he makes to the Jewish crowd here is all, it's all trying to say one thing. He's trying to communicate to them, I'm not an outsider. Rather, I'm one of you. I'm not anti-Jew, I am pro-Jew. I'm one of you. I am zealous for the law just as you are. In fact, I'm more zealous for the law than even you are. 
I was raised, as a, I'm a Pharisee. I was raised under the education of Gamaliel. I'm zealous for the law to the highest degree. Yet, I have seen and I recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And so, I want to express to you the full realization of Judaism, which is that Jesus is the Messiah and He has come to us. And so that's the point that Paul's making here. He's, he's speaking to them in the Hebrew language, the ancient language of their fathers, and he's trying to communicate to them that I'm not an enemy of yours, I'm not an outsider, I'm one of you, and I'm here to bring you the message of the Messiah. So then he comes to his conversion story, which we looked at half of that last week. We said that the conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus has two important elements to it that we should recognize. The first was the words of Jesus uh, to Paul on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we said last week that this was enormously convicting for Paul because obviously this voice that's speaking to him is a supernatural voice. It's not a human that's speaking to him. And so when this supernatural voice speaks to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? It's at that point that Paul realizes that he's not working for God as he thought he was. He's actually God's enemy. And when he came to the realization that God, that he is God's enemy, but also that God died for his enemy, and this person that's speaking to him now is the resurrected Christ who suffered for him as Paul was his enemy, this is enormously convicting for Paul. Why are you persecuting me? And that just brings down a mountain of conviction upon the Apostle Paul, or we have become the Apostle Paul, brings down this mountain of conviction upon him, and he's converted. Just as, just as we, in our conversion experience, as we realize that we are, we're not God's friend outside of Christ, we're not his friend. We are his enemy. We are either his follower or we are his enemy. And furthermore, God died for enemies. He suffered for, Jesus didn't die for people who loved him, he died for people who hated him. And as we come to realize that, that's when we too, just like Saul, were convicted and converted after that. And so that's the first aspect of this uh, conversion experience of, of Paul that he tells us about. The second aspect is what we'll begin talking about today. The second aspect is the aspect of this light, this bright light that comes to Paul. So let's go ahead and just begin here in verse 6. We'll reread the conversion experience that he's retelling in verse, verse 6. Um, beginning here in verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. So this bright light comes to Paul on the road to Damascus, and it is overwhelmingly bright. Later on, Paul is going to tell this story for uh, the, the third time in the Acts story when we get to chapter 26, and there he's going to tell us that this happened at noon in the middle of the day when the sun was the brightest. And so the overwhelming bright light must have been enormously overwhelming because it came at the brightest point of the day. And this bright light that comes upon Paul, we see what happens. The bright light, first of all, blinds him. It was a blinding light. 
didn't blind the others, but it did blind Paul. And the blindness results, uh, the, the brightness of the light results in his blindness. But what Paul does is he responds to this bright light. He responds physically by speaking, what shall I do, Lord? But he responds, more importantly than that, he responds spiritually. He responds in repentance and belief. And the, his response to this bright light results in his sight being restored to him. As we're told uh, later on in verse 13, that his sight was restored to him. But not only was his physical sight restored, more importantly, his spiritual sight was given to him. And he now sees and understands Jesus is the, the culmination of all the promises in the Old Testament. Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied about. And so now he sees with understanding, and having now seen with understanding, he believes, he's converted, he's transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Paul is now a new creation. And as a result of being a new creation, Paul now becomes a witness. So you see the progression. The blinding light brings about a blindness which is removed. His sight is restored as he responds to that light. And then as he responds to it, he's converted, he's transformed, and then a result of his transformation is that he becomes a witness, like he's doing right now. He's a witness for what God has done through him, in him. And that's the progression that conversion is intended to take for all of us. That's the progression that it's intended to take for you. The blinding light of God's truth comes to you, and it blinds you. It's painful, isn't it? When we experience the, the, uh, the conviction of the Spirit as we realize that we are God's enemies. Outside of Christ, we're His enemy. That's painful, isn't it? I would imagine that this experience that Paul had was a very painful experience. I've never been blinded by a bright light. But I've looked at the sun too long, and it doesn't feel too good. But imagine that being blinded by a light such as this would be a physically painful experience. In a similar way, being faced with the reality of our sin is a painful experience also. But when we respond to that, then we are then transformed. We're given our sight, our spiritual sight. We're then transformed. We're new creatures. And then the purpose of all that is that we would then become witnesses. That is to be our experience that we experience this blinding, convicting truth, reality of our own sin, and the result of that, of that is that we are to become witnesses. Now, God does this for Paul on the road to Damascus. However, this is also what God has done for the Jewish nation. Just as Paul is to be transformed into a new creation and become a witness for God among the, among the Gentiles and the Jews, so also was the Jewish nation itself supposed to be the ones who are the recipients of the light of God and who are the spreaders of that light of God. However, they didn't. And so that's what I want to just talk about for just a minute, and then we'll move on past that. But just for a minute, let's just flesh out some of the truths that come to us in this idea of the light that comes to Paul on the Damascus Road. First of all, let's, let's just um, recognize the fact that a light, in order to be a light, should be recognized. A light should be recognized as what it is, right? If a light is not recognized as a light, it's not a very good light, is it? Uh, this past week, uh, one evening this past week, I went and turned on the garage light. And in, in the garage up at the house, there's these, the, you know, the long tube fluorescent bulbs, right? And 
Uh, you know how they get when they're kind of worn out or the ballast is sort of worn out, and you turn them on, and they kind of come on. You know what I'm talking about? Where maybe the ends of the light come on, and you're looking at it, you're like, I'm not sure, is that on or is that not on? It's not a very good light, is it, if you're not even sure if it's on or not. And so in order to be an effective light, it must be recognized as a light, and the light that's coming from it must be recognized as a light. Paul clearly recognized this light that was coming to him. The others saw it, but they didn't recognize it. So a light must be recognized for what it is and for what it's doing. I'm reminded of a science class in which the teacher asked the class, which was the most important light, the sun or the moon, which was the more important light. Well, one student raised his hand and said, well, that's easy. The moon is more important than the sun. And the teacher, a little bit surprised, asked him, well, why is that? Well, obviously, everybody knows that the moon is the most important light because the moon gives us light at night when we need it most. The sun gives us light in the day. And who needs more light in the day? Right? The, the student didn't exactly recognize that the sun was the source of light for the moon and that all the light that he experienced in the day was actually a result of the sun. He didn't recognize the light for what it was. And so in order to be effective, a light must be recognized as the light. The light came to God's people and they didn't recognize it. John says in John chapter 1, verse 11, He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. Just as those who were traveling with Paul saw the light, but they didn't recognize it. They didn't understand it. In order to be effective, a light must be recognized. And the light of God had come to God's people, and God's people didn't recognize it. But this wasn't the first time. God's people were given the light of God from hundreds of years before this, and the light that they were given was intended to be something that they spread to the Gentile nations. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 6. God says to His people, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. And so the light of God was given to God's people, and the point was that they were to be spreaders of that light. But instead of being spreaders of that light, they kept the light to themselves, or so they thought. They were, they were to be like the moon that was reflecting the light of God to the Gentile nations, but they were more like black holes that just absorbed whatever was given to them and didn't spread it to anyone. They were not the light that they, were should, they, that they should be because they didn't recognize the light as it came to them. So we see that. We see that a light must be recognized, but secondly, we also see that a light can also be hidden. And in fact, the less powerful a light is, the easier it is to hide that light. We know this from, you know, just, just a flashlight. You ever taken a flashlight, of course, and put your palm of your hand over the light, and what happens is that the light basically goes out and all you see is maybe some, uh, some pink bright skin around the edges or something like that, because that light is easy to be hidden. Or who hasn't, who hasn't taken a flashlight and put the, put the bottom of it on the ground and then pretend it's a rocket ship taking off, right? because you can easily hide the light by covering over it. So a light can be hidden. John says in, 1 John, in John chapter 1, verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The more powerful the light is, the harder it is to hide it. Right? That's a logical statement. The more powerful a light is, the more difficult it is to hide that light. A flashlight is rather easy to hide. However, the light of the sun is a little bit more difficult to hide, isn't it? 
I'm reminded of, uh, of experiences as I was a kid. You all have similar experiences. In my grandpa's tool shed, he had a tool shed that was the most basic building that you could imagine. It was just literally just some poles with some clapboard siding put together. And this tool shed inside, there was no electric light. But I remember many, many times going into this tool shed in the middle of the day, and this, these boards, these clapboard siding on the side would have cracks in it. And as I would go into that tool shed, there would be beams of light coming through these cracks. And there was one crack in particular that let in this light. It was, it was maybe a quarter of an inch wide. And I remember distinctly going into that tool shed, and th- with the, the light that was coming through that crack would illuminate for me literally thousands and thousands of dust particles in the air that I didn't see otherwise. But this light that was coming through the crack illuminated those dust particles that were flying through the air. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You ever have that happen in your house where the sun shines in a window and you see all this dust floating around in front of the window? You're like, oh, let me go over here and breathe because I don't want to breathe that dust over there. But the sun comes in and it illuminates something that you couldn't see otherwise. Now, the point I'm trying to make is that the light from the sun was coming in through this crack that was no more than a quarter of an inch wide. Now, I began thinking about that light, and what I determined was that the source of that light was 90 million miles away. 90 million miles away. And light that travels for several minutes to get to us from 90 million miles away passes through a space a quarter of an inch wide, and it illuminates the room. Why? Because that's a powerful light. A powerful light is difficult to hide. A powerful light is much more difficult to hide than, say, a flashlight or something that's less powerful like that. Here's the sun. And the light from the sun is so powerful. You ever, you ever gotten sunburned? Painfully sunburned? That's a powerful light coming from the sun. That light is so powerful that literally a quarter of an inch crack can illuminate a room. And that's like the light of God, trying to shine through the quarter-inch crack of our life and illuminate the lives of others. That's why people are so mad at Paul now. Because the light of God is shining through him and illuminating all the sin, all the dust particles in their life. And so the more powerful a light is, the more difficult it is to hide. And, in fact, the light of God will not remain hidden. Jesus says in Matthew 5, people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. The light of God will not remain hidden. In fact, it's not intended to be hidden. It's intended to be exposed. And the light of God, the last point that we'll see about the light, the light of God cannot be ignored. Paul could do a lot of things on the Damascus Road, but one thing he could not do was ignore that light. It was impossible for Paul to ignore that light. It was so bright, it was so blinding that it was literally impossible for him to ignore. You ever been driving in the winter? You know, when the sun's low in the sky and you're driving right into the sun and it's about a half an inch over the the tree horizon, right there in your face? You know what I'm talking about? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Is that easy to ignore? You cannot ignore that, can you? Because it's such a bright light right in your face. In the summer times when it's warmer out, I like to do my morning, morning Bible reading on the front porch. And that works great up until about 7.10 when the sun 
comes over this ridge of trees right here, and it's right in my face. And you ever try to read a book with the sun right in your face? It doesn't work too well because you can't ignore that light. The same thing is true with the light of God. The light of God can be rejected. The light of God can be refused. But the light of God cannot be ignored. And this is exactly the position that Paul is in on the Damascus Road. He cannot ignore this light that is coming to him. Now, he is a witness to the light, and those who are hearing him, neither can they ignore it either. And so, he tells of this experience on the Damascus Road, the powerful light that came to him, the blinding light. And then verse 12, And one Ananias, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. You hear how he's describing Ananias? A devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. In other words, he's a good Jew. Everybody would approve of Ananias. He was a good Jew, and he received Paul, and he welcomed Paul, and he blessed Paul. He called, Paul, uh, he called him his brother. You see what Paul is trying to say. I'm not an outsider. Here is a good, devout Jew, well thought of by everybody there, and he received me into his house and called me brother. So Ananias receives him, verse 13. He came to me, and standing by me, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. So he received his physical sight, but he received, more importantly, his spiritual sight. Verse 14, and he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. So see again how the emphasis that he's putting on the fact that he's not an outsider. The God of our fathers. The God of our fathers. I'm not talking about the God of the the Gentiles. I'm not talking about the pagan gods of the Romans. I'm talking about the God of our fathers has appointed you, says Ananias, to know His will, to see the righteous one. Now, nobody would have any any doubt on what Paul is talking about when he says the righteous one. Clearly, he's referring to the Messiah, the Son of God, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from His mouth. Now, whose voice did Paul hear? Jesus's, right? So clearly, he just said, Jesus Christ is Messiah. He couldn't have said it any more clearly. God, the God of our fathers, has appointed you to know His will and to hear the voice of the righteous one, and I just heard it out on the road to Damascus. So clearly he's speaking of Jesus as the Messiah. He's the exclusive Messiah of God. And so He's appointed you, verse 15, you will be a witness for Him. There's this theme of witnessing. The whole book of Acts is all about us as witnesses for God. So he's a, 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 he's a, you'll be a witness for Him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Now verse 16, now why do you wait? Why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Reminds us of the Ethiopian eunuch, right? There's water right here. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Why do you wait, Paul? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on His name. Now is that verse teaching that baptism saves us? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's not teaching that. Because the key of the sentence comes next, calling on His name. That's the faith of calling upon His name. That's the, that's the saving property there. The, the baptism is just a symbol. So, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. Then verse 17, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. Again, Paul's a good Jew. He doesn't despise the temple. That's what they have accused him of, 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 of uh, violating the temple, of... of uh, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Contaminating the temple by bringing Jews into the temple. Paul is not that. He's one that when he came to Jerusalem and he needed to pray, he went to the temple and prayed in the temple. 
He respects the temple. He honors the temple. He worships in the temple. He prays in the temple. So he's trying to make his point, I'm not against you. I'm with you. I'm for you. So when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. Now here's going to tell of of another visit that Jesus makes to him. This extended section here from chapter 22 down through halfway halfway through chapter 23, this extended section, Paul tells us of three visits that Jesus makes to him. The first visit he told about on the Damascus Road. The second time Jesus visits him, Paul tells us right here in the temple. And then the third time that Jesus visits Paul, we're going to read about that down, uh, down halfway through chapter 23. So three visits that, Paul, that Jesus makes to Paul. This is the second one. Now in the second visit, uh, Paul says, I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So let's talk about that for a minute. Paul is here in Jerusalem. And when is this, by the way? This is about three years after his conversion. Remember, Paul is converted on the road to Damascus. He stays in Damascus for some time, preaching there, until finally they're, they're about to kill him there, and he's got to escape through the basket down the wall, right? And he flees to Jerusalem. And you remember, he comes to Jerusalem, and everybody's still afraid of him, right? The apostles don't want to meet with him because they're afraid of this guy Paul. Barnabas brings him to the apostles. You remember that story? So this is about three years after his conversion. He comes back to Jerusalem. And we know that Paul will go on to be the, the apostle to the blank Gentiles, right? And Peter will be the apostle to the Jews. Let's ask the question right now, is that what Paul wanted? Was that plan A for Paul? To be the apostle to the Gentiles? You're shaking your head. I don't think so. I think that Paul's desire was to be the apostle to the Jews. I think that for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think Paul believes that he is the best one equipped to be the apostle to the Jews. In fact, he goes on to tell us so. In verse 19, Jesus says to him, you need to get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to accept what you have to say. He kind of argues a little bit with Jesus, doesn't he? And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. In other words, Jesus to Paul. They're not going to believe you, Paul. Get out of Jerusalem. But wait, Jesus, are you sure? I mean, I was the one who was persecuting the church. I was the one that before I believed in you, I was the most zealous about persecuting the church. Are you sure they're not going to believe what I have to say? He believes that he is equipped to be the apostle to the Jews. Now let's think about this rationally. We know Peter goes on to be the apostle to the Jews, right? And Paul goes on to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Which one of those two would have been better equipped to be the apostle to the Jews? Peter was a fisherman. Peter was a lower class Jew. Peter was uneducated. Peter was not trained in the law. Who do Jewish people respect? Those who are trained in the law. Paul was a Pharisee. Climbing the ladder of Pharisee success. 
Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the most popular and well-respected Jewish teacher of the law of his day. Paul was experiencing great success in the upper echelons of Jewish community and Jewish life. He was getting these letters from the Sanhedrin saying, yes, we authorize you to go out and round up those who disagree with us. Paul saw himself, I believe, as the most well-equipped to speak to the Jews because Paul was a highbrow Jew. Highly educated. Highly respected. A Pharisee of Pharisees. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, if we were trying to decide, okay, we've got two apostles here. One of them needs to be the apostle to the Gentiles. One needs to be the apostle to the Jews. One of them is Peter. One of them is Paul. Which one would we choose? I think hands down we would choose Paul as the best equipped Jew to speak to those who were Jewish. The highbrow, high society, accomplished, learned Jew who met Jesus and was converted on the road to Damascus. Meanwhile, Peter is the lower class Jew. He's the fisherman. Uneducated, doesn't speak very well. He's going to go to the Gentiles, right? Because the Gentiles and the Jews like each other or don't like each other? Don't like each other, right? And who do the Gen- among the Jews, who do the Jews hate the most? The highbrow Jews. The ones who think that they're better than everybody. I mean, all the Jews kind of thought they were, but the ones who especially thought they were better than everybody else was the educated ones. And so the, the natural choice of those to go, the apostle to go to the Gentiles would have been Peter. And you see how God says, uh-uh, that's not the way I'm going to do it. Isn't that consistent with what God typically does? When God chooses someone to do a work in His kingdom, doesn't He usually pick the one that we think is the least equipped? He needs somebody to go speak to Pharaoh. So He chooses someone who is a murderer who murdered one of Pharaoh's people, and now he has a speech impediment that he can't speak very well anyway. He's the one to go speak to Pharaoh. Or he needs a king for Israel. And so he doesn't choose the firstborn, the tallest, the strongest, the mightiest. He chooses the lastborn, the runt of the litter. He needs somebody to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And he chooses the one who hated Gentiles the most and the one who was the object of the greatest hate from the Gentiles. He needs an apostle to the Jews. And so he chooses the low-class fisherman Jew who can barely speak, who hasn't been educated, who doesn't know the law. You see how God typically works. His usual plan is not to take the one who's most equipped in our perception. Instead, he chooses the one who's least equipped. As Paul will say later on, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? Because we don't want to show the the value of the jar. We want to show the value of the treasure inside, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's the first reason I think that Paul thought that he was to be the apostle to the Jews. Secondly, I think Paul had a deep, burning ambition to be the apostle to his people. I think that partly because of what he said to the Romans. I got in your sermon notes. I've got Romans one ten. It's supposed to be Romans ten one. I'm sorry, I got uh, I didn't catch that. But anyway, in Romans ten, Paul really fleshes out just how burdened he is 
for His own people. He says, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And he goes on fleshing that out. Remember, he finally says, If I could give my salvation away and they be saved, I would go to damnation for them. I think Paul was tremendously burdened for his own people. And I think that he had a great ambition to be the apostle to the Jews. As our brother said earlier, that's always where he went first in every town he went to. However, what we see is God doing something that He has already done once before. He is curbing the ambition of Paul to send him a different direction. Remember chapter 16, who can forget the Macedonian call? Paul wanted to go to Asia. He wanted to go east. And God says, I have something different. I want you to go west. Paul had a deep ambition to go to Asia. And God said to Paul, that ambition is good. It's holy. It's pure. That's not what I would have you to do. Here God does the same thing. He has an ambition. And in fact, I think that's why he's in Jerusalem. Because he thinks the time has come for him to now be the apostle to the Jews. And God says, no. You need to leave. They're not going to listen to you. You need to get out. God does this, the same thing in the story of David. You remember David? David in 1 Samuel 7 had a deep desire to build the temple of God. And it was a pure desire. It wasn't a selfish... He didn't want to glorify himself. He earnestly wanted to build God a temple. And he goes to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, this is what I want to do for God. And what does Nathan say? If that's your heart's desire, you do it. And you do it well. And then God comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, it's not that his desire is bad, it's not that his motive is bad, but I would not have him do that. And so Nathan has to go to David and say, this is not what God has for you. Sometimes, God does not take our greatest ambitions and use them. Now, this is to say that ambitions are, are not bad. Oftentimes, God does take our ambitions and He feeds them and He grows them and He nurtures them and He uses them. Case in point, Paul also had another ambition to go to Rome. And this is the part that's in your notes. Romans 1, verse 10, Paul says, asking that somehow by God's will I may now be at last succeed in coming to you. Paul had a deep desire to take the gospel to Rome. He had an ambition to take that gospel to Rome. Later on in chapter 23, verse 11, God's going to say to Paul, Jesus comes to him again, and God's going to feed that ambition and He's going to bring it to fruition. Jesus says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the fact about me in Jerusalem, so must you testify also in Rome. So God takes that ambition and He feeds it and He grows it and He brings it to, to, to fruition. The ambitions of man are not necessarily bad. Our ambitions can be good, they can be pure, they can be holy, but we must always lay them at the altar of the sovereignty of God and allow God to overrule those or to change those or to amend those or to change them all together. So, uh, Proverbs 16 verse 10, I'm sorry, 16 verse 9 says, The heart of man plans his way but the Lord establishes His steps. We must always place our ambitions at the altar of God, allowing Him to overrule them. Now, God overrules this ambition of Paul, and how does Paul discern this? How does Paul know that he's not to be the, the apostle to the Jews? How does he learn this? You might say, well, that's easy. Jesus visits him. He has this trance. He has this vision, right? So we should wait for visions for God to tell us, no. No. Let's look closely. 
When is Paul given this information? When he's in prayer. Look at verse 17. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. Prayer is the vehicle through which God can take our personal ambitions and feed them and grow them. Or God can say to us, the ambition is not wrong, but it's not for you. Prayer is the vehicle through which God can, do, can redirect that and do that. So two things that I want us to notice from this section Two things in your notes. First of all, God's roles for us in His kingdom are not always what we feel most equipped to do. Secondly, God's roles for us in His kingdom are not always what we feel most passionate about. God's roles for us in His kingdom are not always what we feel most passionate about. Sometimes they are. Sometimes what we are most passionate about is exactly what God would have us to do for Him. Sometimes not. And sister, if I could just use you as just a quick example... Our sister, uh, Alicia over here. Right now, God is starting an, an incredible work in her life, doing a ministry through her that is all about something that she's very passionate about, which is helping kids. She's passionate about that, and God's taking that passion and using it for His kingdom. But that's not always the case. If you're passionate about taking afternoon naps, I don't think God's going to use that. But a little bit more of a serious example. Sometimes what we're passionate about is not what God would have us to do. For example, when we lived in Colorado, we knew a couple there that um, we were we lived, of course, in the middle of, of the capital of the ski of the of the U.S. skiing industry. We lived four miles from Breckenridge, eight miles from Vail, right in the middle of all the skiing there. And we knew a couple there that they were Christians, they loved God, they loved Jesus, and they loved to ski. And so they tried to put the two together. And they tried to have a ministry ministering to skiers on vacation. Not an easy thing to do. And it wasn't very fruitful. I think, nobody knows somebody else's heart, but I think they just wanted to ski. And I think that they were just trying to find a way to do that and turn that into a ministry. And I think that sometimes God says to us, the passions of your heart are not always what I would have you do. That's not to say that the passions of our heart are bad. But it is to say that sometimes what God would have us to do is not the thing that we are most passionate about. So two things that we gain from that. Now quickly moving on, Paul thinks that he's supposed to be the apostle to the Jews. Uh, God changes that. Paul's telling this story as he's speaking to the Jews here. And he comes to verse 21, and then at the end of this vision, Paul says this, Jesus said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And at that word, everything changed. Up to this word, verse 22, they listened to him. Then, when he spoke the word Gentiles, they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth! He should not be allowed to live. When he spoke the word Gentiles, I'm sending you to the Gentiles with the gospel of God at that moment. He deserves to die. Now, what was it about the fact that Paul now speaks Gentiles. He says he's taken the gospel of God to the Gentiles. Why does that make them so angry? 
Because at that moment, when Paul said that, essentially he's saying this, God saves Gentiles and Jews, and the Gentiles don't need to become Jews in order to be saved. At that moment, Paul, was, had said, Paul said to them, Paul, Paul stripped away from them all of the self-righteousness that they had. Paul ripped out from under them the whole platform of works righteousness on which they were standing, and that's what made them so angry. You see, the Jews were God's chosen people. And God chose them through no goodness of their own. It wasn't like God looked down and said, oh, the Jews are the most lovable people on earth. I'm just going to make them my people. He chose them through nothing in themselves that was good or noble. He just chose them. Now, when God chooses someone, when God puts their favor on a people or when God puts His his favor on a person through no goodness of your own, what should that produce in you? That should produce overwhelming humility and gratitude. If God places His favor upon you through nothing that you have done, that should produce in you humbleness overwhelming humility and overwhelming gratitude. And it did for the Jewish people for a time. However, what we also see is that that humility had completely morphed into the very opposite pride. See how that worked? What should have produced great humility in them actually transformed into pride. We are God's chosen people. Therefore, we're better than you. Therefore, Gentiles, yeah, you can be saved, but you need to become one of us because we're God's chosen people. You see how that it worked? And when Paul says to them, God sent me to the Gentiles, Paul just ripped out from under them all of their works righteousness, everything that they stood on that that said, We are God's people. Our customs, our traditions, our sacrifices, our ways, our history, all of this makes us better than them. All of this makes us people that God loves more than them. And that made them angry. Sometimes you can make church people today very angry by telling them, that God loves lost people just as much as them. That God loves meth addicts just as much as He loves you. That God doesn't love you more than He loves an adulterer. God doesn't love you more than He loves somebody who stays at home on Sunday mornings. Sometimes that can make church folks just as angry. This sure makes the Jews quite angry when Paul says, Essentially, he says to them, God loves the Gentiles just as He loves you and He's sending me to be the light to them because you were supposed to be, but you never were. This brings to mind two two stories from the Old Testament that I think are particularly relevant. First of all, of course, the story of Jonah. Jonah, who became so angry and so upset because God wanted to save people that He hated. 
That's what the story of Jonah is about. It's about God's deep desire to save people that Jonah bitterly hated and how he didn't want that to happen. What if God loved people that I hate as much as He loves me? What if God loved people that we would be embarrassed to have come among us in church this morning? What if He loved them just as much as He loves us? So the story of Jonah comes to mind. Secondly, the story of the ark. Noah's ark. You know, Noah's ark is not a story that's primarily about God saving animals and God saving Noah's family. God does that, of course. It is, of course, a factual story. It really did happen that way. However, that's not the point of the story of of, of Noah. The point of the story of Noah is God's desire to save all people. Because who does He save through the flood? Animals of every kind? God goes to great lengths to bring animals of every kind and save them all. In the same way, God goes to great lengths to bring people of every kind to the cross to save them all. What if God loved illegal aliens as much as He loves people? What if God loved those people that you see on your TV that are so radical uh, abortion supporters? What if He loved them the same way He loves me? What if God loved the people that, that I despise in the same way that He loves me?